Well, good evening, brethren. It's always good to be here and see you face to face. I think I've been coming here for 30 plus years, and uh, I have found over those years that this conference has been a wonderful means of grace. Sometimes I've come here very discouraged, thinking I should quit the ministry, but the Word of God was preached so faithfully and God ministered to me. So I've been persevering for, I think, what, 36 years in the ministry, and no doubt this conference and the friends that are here have been a wonderful means of grace. I think it was the J.C. Ryle who said, friends, double your joys and half your sorrows. They double your joy. So thank you for the joy that you brought to my heart for these many years. Many folks here who probably don't know how much joy you brought to my heart. Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I simply want to read one verse and give exposition of this one verse. Romans 12, verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be, I'm reading from the ESV, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let's again look to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we are thankful that we can gather on this blessed day, the Lord's Day. We are thankful for the fellowship of the saints. We are thankful for the means of grace. And we do pray again, Lord, that you would show your kind mercy and grace to us. We cry to you as the God, the Father, who loves to give good gifts to his children and we are always in need, no matter where we are spiritually, we are always in need of grace. We need helping grace. We need strengthening grace. We need enlightening grace. We need forgiving grace. And so please, Lord, show us again that you are the God. We believe that you are the God of grace. And we ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. The book of Romans is about the gospel, where the righteousness of God is revealed. B.B. Warfield called it an alien righteousness that becomes our righteousness the moment we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans is shaped, what theologians say, by gospel grammar, indicatives, and imperatives. Romans begins by telling us what God has done, the indicatives, and then tell us what we must do, the imperatives. And clearly, Romans 1 through 11 establishes the glorious, triumphant indicatives of the gospel. But everything flows from that. Everything that we do as Christians can only be done because of what Christ has done for us by his Son, and in us by his spirit. You and I could never love him unless he first loved us. And the gospel builds upon the foundation of the indicatives, which are followed by a superstructure of imperatives. That explains why when you come to Romans 12, 
we are faced with moral requirements and duties and commands galore. In Romans chapter 12 alone, we have somewhat 25 to 30 plus imperatives and duties. And if we are honest, there can be an inbred reluctance and resistance when it comes to God's commandments. Paul makes that very point, does he not, back in Romans 7, when he says that when I would do good, there is evil within me. There's something of a militant, rebellious attitude towards doing good. We love to sing about the grace of God, but not so much about the law of God. Pastor Kevin DeYoung, the world has accused the Christian community of being homophobic, but namas, law, phobia, may be our bigger problem. J.C. Ryle, writing back in the 1800s, voiced the same concern and warned of what he called a jellyfish Christianity without muscle and without power. And if Paul were writing his epistles today, lots of people would get on board with the grace emphasis, but I'm not sure they would get on board with the law emphasis. But Paul never separated the indicatives from the imperatives. And the therefore of Romans 12 verse 1 begins to introduce us to the imperatives. In Romans 12, he calls us to a radical, comprehensive life of obedience. And after establishing the basic overarching principles in those first two verses of Romans 12, he then deals with right thinking about ourselves and then about our use of gifts in verses 3 through 8. And then beginning in verse 9, he teaches us how to live in relationships to those inside the church and also outside the church. But the big focus really in Romans 12, 13 into 14 and to 15 is about loving the family of God. Living together. And this love discourse, I do believe, begins in chapter 12, but runs right through to chapter 15, where he deals with Christian liberty and loving one another when we disagree on non-essentials that are not clearly revealed in our Bibles. And the very first word he mentions to get the moral agenda set in our minds and hearts is the word love. Look again at Romans 12, verse 9. If you look closely, he uses a definite article, the love, that is the love that we are to show, that is the love that we are to put on display. If you are familiar with your Bibles, if you've read any substantial amount of the New Testament, you should be very familiar with the love commandment. It's sprinkled everywhere. Now, let me just say, this is a very special kind of love. It's a supernatural love. It's not something we're born with, but we are reborn with. This love is gifted by the Holy Spirit. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. But what distinguishes it from every other kind of love in the world, let me show you this evening as we begin to examine this particular love. I have three major perspectives on Romans 12, verse 9. Number one, 
the leading feature, the leading feature that defines this special love. Secondly, the major sin that contradicts this special love. And then thirdly, the practical steps to cultivate this special love. So that's where we want to go with the time remaining here. The leading feature that defines this special love, the major sin that contradicts this special love, and the practical steps to cultivate this special love. So let's begin, number one, with the leading feature that defines this special love. This special love is identified by that Greek word agape, which fills your New Testament Bible like pepper and salt. Depending upon your English translation, you find that word agape love mentioned 500 plus times. Every Christian should be well familiarized with agape love. But if you were living back in the days of Jesus or in the days of the apostles, you could have walked the streets of Jerusalem or any major city in Greek or Rome, and you probably would not have found the word agape love used very often. It was almost a foreign concept. It was rarely used among the Greeks and the Romans. In fact, it was somewhat despised and ridiculed. A love associated with sacrificial giving, a love that demands serving others, who wants that kind of love? How do you succeed in a world if you love without expecting anything in return? People will use you. You'll become something of a doormat. And love your enemies? That sounds like a suicide mission. And listen, agape love doesn't get rave reviews today. The world we live in loves to talk about love, but it really isn't this kind of love. And why Paul talks a lot about love, I think Paul could arguably be called the apostle of love. He wants us to understand agape love. Who, who wrote that great hymn of love in 1 Corinthians 13, but also here in Romans 12. And as I said, it runs right through, I would argue, right to Romans 15. And the reason why we can be so sure that he's talking here about love is that he mentions it explicitly at least four or five times. Look at chapter 12, three times, verse 9, verse 10. And then he picks up the adjective form of agape, verse 19, beloved, Romans 13, four more times, twice in verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. And then he fires what you could call rapid-fire commands, all having to do with love. Verses 9 through 21. The whole section is terse and abrupt. And what intensifies this rapid-fire element, this machine-gun-like presentation, is there are no verbs. They're supplied by our translators. Not one verb. Now most people think they are good at loving people. I give to the poor. I buy groceries for the lady next door. 
But let's not forget 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul said, a man can give everything he owns, literally every crumb of bread. He could even have his body burned to a crisp as a martyr, but all the while loveless, self-serving, thinking only of me, myself, and I. And here in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul does what you might call heart surgery. He pulls out the scalpel and begins to cut into the heart and wants us to check our own love muscle. Now, most English translations translated in a very positive way. Like I said, the ESV, let love be genuine. The NIV, uh, let love be sincere. But the old King James, as well as the new King James, has what you could call a more literal translation without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy, the actual Greek word, the Greek letter L, A, alpha, the negative is in front of this Greek word, anupokratos. Literally, hypocrite. Without hypocrisy. Alpha, without hypocrisy. And this love negative is used to other places in the New Testament. And that's why I argue that it's a leading feature of love. That's significant. Paul uses it. You can turn in your Bibles and see for yourself the 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6, and let me pick up the reading at verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 6 here. <clears throat> excuse me, Paul is talking about himself and his fellow missionaries, letting the Corinthians know that he was the real McCoy, as real as real can be. He loved them, and so did his comrades. He loved the Corinthians genuinely and sincerely. And even the way he talks here about his sufferings was proof of how sincere and genuine his love was for them. Look what he says, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit. And here's your word, genuine love without hypocrisy. In other words, our love wasn't phony, fake, counterfeit. It was real, genuine love. Peter also uses this alpha negative in 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Again, the same word. So Peter joins Paul and describes love by this alpha negative, a love without hypocrisy. It's one of the strongest expressions of love in the whole Bible. Love is put into sharp contrast with hypocrisy. Why? Because agape love is completely incompatible with hypocrisy. The late John Murray, in his excellent commentary on Romans, says, Love is the sum of virtue. 
Hypocrisy is the epitome of vice. One of the best things you could say about a person is that person's very loving. One of the worst things you could say about a person is that person's a hypocrite. Here is the leading feature of love. Love is sincere. Love is genuine. It doesn't put on facades. That brings us to our second matter as we want to dig into the text a little deeper. The major sin that contradicts this special love. The major sin that contradicts this special love. Children, let me ask you the question. When you think of football, what comes to mind? Probably quarterbacks, right? You generally think of the, the quarterbacks on the team uh, who are the best and who control the game and who win Super Bowls. And the, uh, you have the Tom Brady and the Peyton Manning and the Aaron Rodgers and the Patrick Mahomes. And when you think of basketball, what do you think of? Well, you think of those guys who can really actually quarterback a team, right? You think of Michael Jordan and you think of LeBron James. And when you think of religion, when you think of the religion in Jesus' day, you actually had a kind of quarterbacking taking place. Quarterbacks control the game. If you had walked into the temple or walked the streets of Jerusalem, you would have seen these big star quarterbacks. They had special uniforms, long white robes with dangling blue tassels. I'll give you their names. It might shock you, the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the top players. There were about 6,000 of them. They were the religious elites. And they played this game, this religious game, well. They actually invented their own rules. They had additional rules so they could show up better on the playing field. And they secured a lot of human applause and cheers from the audience by their performance. But what drove them was what? Pride. Fear, deceit, greed, selfishness. And I say fear because fear often makes people very controlling. You might say they were control freaks. They wanted to control the Sabbath day by the rules. And Jesus knew these guys better than they knew themselves. He knew their hearts. And when he showed up, he began to take on the corrupt religious establishment by using his Bible, challenging, exposing their wickedness and their lawlessness. And the big word that Jesus used more than any other word to confront them was the word hypocrite. If you turn to Matthew 27, you'll see it for yourself seven times. Seven times he picks up that word hypocrite. It's probably the most scathing sermon you'll find anywhere in your Bibles. I remember Pastor Martin saying when we were in the academy that people can push back on your preaching and say the preacher's gone from preaching to meddling. And then he said, well, if you haven't meddled, you haven't preached. 
Jesus did some meddling. And you know why? This might surprise you. Because he loved the Pharisees. Just, just read the, the parable of the lost son. It's really a parable about two lost sons. At the very back end of that parable, he's making an appeal to the Pharisee. He wants him to come home too. But Matthew 23 is what you could call tough love. And you could say it's Romans 12, 9 love. Look again at Romans 12, 9. It says, love be genuine, but quickly adds this. Love abhors evil or hates evil. The so-called love of today tolerates evil and even calls evil good. But Jesus is confronting the evil in the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes. And if you really love people, you'll have to speak the truth. And sometimes the truth will wound. Doesn't the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But Jesus, look at here, he fires off several blistering denunciations. Start at verse 13 of Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dillon and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear outwardly beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now we should remember this about hypocrisy. It affects the hearts of Christians too. What two sins does Jesus address most extensively in the Sermon on the Mount. You pastors know, don't you? You've preached on it, haven't you? Anxiety and hypocrisy. Anxiety and hypocrisy. And remember in the Sermon on the Mount who he's talking to. He's talking to those people who he is described by those nine beatitudes. The poor in spirit, the merciful, they are, they are the light of the world. They are the salt of the earth. But Jesus recognizes that kingdom citizens, born again people, whose lives are shaped by those beatitudes, can struggle with hypocrisy and anxiety. Now, I don't know if this is just my experience. I've heard a lot of Christians say to me, I struggle with anxiety. <laughs> I mean, I almost hear it every week. I struggle, with ang I, I struggle a lot with anxiety. I've never heard anyone come to me and say, I struggle with hypocrisy. Maybe we just got some wonderful saints in our church. I don't know. But it seems to me Jesus says they hang together. 
And they very well could be driven by the same sins. Anxious people can be proud people. It's a control issue. Isn't that the same with hypocrisy? It's a control issue. Selfishness. Fear. Now the word hypocrite in its original setting was, wasn't a bad word. It was used in the Greek world of theater. It described people who would wear masks. And they would play act on stage. Children, if you have, I think you have here at Trinity a VBS. We've had a VBS the last couple of years, and it's been a wonderful thing to see. Our children get engaged. And sometimes churches have a Christmas pageant, and, and people play act, and they pretend to be Moses, or they pretend to be David, or Mary, or Joseph. That's all okay. There's nothing wrong with that kind of pretending. You could argue that's a good kind of pretending because you're simply trying to teach truth by play acting. You could say that sincere love behind that play acting. But there can be a bad kind of play acting, can't there? And religious people can be like Hollywood actors. They can give an academy performance. All the while, it's all for show. It's all for money. It's all for fame and prestige. And listen, we all struggle to some degree and want attention for the wrong reasons and for the wrong and do it in the wrong way. We do it more for the eyes of men than the eyes of God. John Calvin put it this way. Since we are all all naturally prone to hypocrisy. Any empty semblance of righteousness is quite enough to satisfy us instead of righteousness itself. The human heart has so many crannies where vanity hides, so many holes where falsehood works, so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that it often dupes itself. That's why Jesus called the Pharisees, you hypocrites, but he also said you're blind. You don't know you're hypocrites. Most times hypocrites are self-deceived. Saul of Tarsus, I mean, he was a hypocrite. Touching the, lame, the law blameless, I mean, he, he thought he was doing great. But one day, remember what happened, we don't know exactly how it happened, but one day he came face to face with the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. He came to the shocking realization, he wasn't so good after all. He had a gigantic tumor of sin growing inside of his heart, 
It's interesting how he describes it in Romans 7. All kinds of covetousness. All kinds. His sin tumor of covetousness had metastasized. He began to see it everywhere on his tongue, on his feelings, his affections, his desires. It even touched his earlobes. Some think, and I, I think there's a good argument for it, I won't go into the details of the argument, but that the guy that really provoked Saul of Tarsus' covetousness and envy was Stephen. Remember Stephen? We meet him in Acts 6 and Acts 7, and, and, and uh, Saul's complicit in the, in the martyrdom of that guy. And you find men from Cilicia disputing with Stephen in Acts chapter 6. That's where Saul of Tarsus was from. And maybe he became jealous. This guy can debate. This guy can argue better than I can. He knows his Bible better than I do. And he can perform wonders and miracles. I can't do that. And so Saul was like a marathon runner who always seemed to be winning the races until Stephen showed up. And suddenly he's not winning anymore. He doesn't like competition. Now we should qualify that no Christian is a hypocrite through and through. But we can struggle with hypocrisy just like we struggle with fear and anxiety. And maybe we have to be more honest. But every Christian should be determined to love Romans 12, verse 9 way. Love without hypocrisy. And to love like this, we're going to have to be on guard. We're going to have to be on red alert. We're going to have to fight and resist one of the greatest hindrances to love, which is what? The sin of hypocrisy. So that brings us to our final consideration when it comes to loving the, the Romans 12 way. We've looked at the leading feature that defines this special love, the, the major sin that contradicts this special love. But thirdly and finally, the practical steps to cultivate this special love. How do you cultivate this special agape love, a love without hypocrisy? How do you have a genuine love, a sincere love? How can we maintain it and cultivate it? Well, let me give you two, two practical counsels. And, and in no way is this exhaustive. We could probably preach 10 sermons on some of the ways we have to deal or put hypocrisy to death. But if we believe that hypocrisy is a real danger, that it can easily plague our hearts. And maybe, maybe it can plague pastors' hearts more than other people's hearts. Because we, we, we have a job that gives us profile. We stand in pulpits. People listen to us. How do you fight it? Well, it's going to be a lifelong battle. But let me mention, first of all, you have to know the enemy. 
right? You, you can't fight the enemy if you don't know who he is. And the enemy's hypocrisy. So, so what, what is hypocrisy? What is this evil of hypocrisy? Let, let me give you five things you should know about hypocrisy so you can recognize it. When you see it, you can take that knife of mortification and stab it. Here are five things about hypocrisy. Number one, hypocrisy loves the praise of men. Hypocrisy loves the praise of men. Matthew 6, Jesus warns us, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have the glory from men. They were glory thieves. And we can become approval junkies. We can love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And that kind of hypocrisy can, can operate in the workplace. It can operate in the church. It can operate in our families. Parents can do that with their children. They so desperately want their children's praise. They, they will do anything to earn that praise, even at the expense of truth and real love. So they never say no, and they never spank them. I think I'm seeing a generation of non-spankers. Where do they get all that insight? Not from their Bibles. Sometimes Christians want the praise of men so much that they're not honest. They hide their sin. And they give the impression they have no struggles. They are perfect. It, it's, the, it's the Facebook presentation. Ever seen that? Perfect marriage, perfect family. Just look at it. It's perfect. But if you had a 24-7 camera or microphone, that would tell a different story. Our love for the praise of men can be a great deterrent when it comes to evangelism, can it? To love without hypocrisy, you have to get honest. You have to get honest with yourself. You have to be truthful. You see that with David in Psalm 51. God desires truth in the inward parts. And David, you remember, was playing uh, something of a hypocrite, wasn't he? And he finally got honest. And he didn't go to Facebook. He started confessing his sins. Second thing you should know about hypocrisy Hypocrisy can make us very critical and judgmental of others. We like to think we are better, more righteous than others. Jesus warns about seeing the speck in the brother's eye, all the while you have a two by four in your own eye. So you confront the brother, you go after the speck in his eye, and there might be a real speck in his eye, but you might not be the right person to talk to your brother about the speck, and that's because you got the two-by-four in your eye. It's hard to do neurosurgery on your brother's eye if you have a two-by-four sticking out of your own eye. And maybe the brother, he has a hard time holding down a job and, and you judge him pretty quickly and you think it's laziness and so you, you go after him and maybe he does have some discipline issues. Maybe there are a few specks in his eye, but did you see the two by four in your eye? 
and you've been struggling with pornography for the last two years, and you haven't said a word to your wife or to your pastors, you've been playing hide-and-seek games. That's a two-by-four. We are being hypocritical when we're more concerned with other people's sins than our own sins. Third, another way hypocrisy shows itself, it strains at gnats and swallows camels. It strains at gnats, those are little teeny woody mosquito-like flies, and swallow camels. You know how big a camel is, don't you? That means we can ignore the big issues and focus on the little issues. We, we can do that again in the workplace. We can do that in our families. We can do that in, in the church. And again, I, I do think that Paul, when he comes to Romans 14, is, is going to help the church navigate through that difficult area of, of Christian liberty. But you see a brother who you think is, 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 is endangering his soul. It, it, it might very well be a Christian liberty, but it's questionable, at least in your view of things. And, and you're going to sit down with that brother and confront him. But all the while, you, you haven't been tithing or giving to the church in the last 10 years. It's not that you couldn't. You have the money. You haven't even given a widow's mite. That's straining at gnats, isn't it? Another danger of hypocrisy. Fourth danger. Hypocrisy keeps your heart from God. You, you can draw near with your lips, but all the while be far from God. Isn't that true? Jesus warned us of, of that kind of thing, drawing near with your lips, but your hearts are far from it. You, you, can, you can be going to church, you can be praying at every prayer meeting, you, you are fasting, you're giving more money than anybody else in the church. And, and on paper, it looks good. From a curbside perspective, it looks great. But your heart is estranged from God. There's something fundamentally lacking on the inside. And, and if the truth be known, you're, you're on the run. In the last 15 months, you've pulled a David or a or Jonah. They, they were fugitives, remember? At least for a while. Temporary fugitives. They did come back. But they had to engage in a lot of hypocritical action during that time. Maybe they were praying, reading their Bibles, but it wasn't with their hearts. And when that kind of hypocrisy begins to mark our lives, it affects our relationships with everybody else. God wants your heart more than your lips. To love without hypocrisy means you're going to have to know how hypocrisy acts and behaves. And the final thing I would say about hypocrisy in terms of the enemy within, fifth, Hypocrisy loves the limelight or the best seats in the house. 
It loves the, the best seats in the house. I've never had anyone come to our church. I've been there a long time, and maybe I've just missed something. But I've had people come to the church asking me when they can preach. But never asking me when they can take out the garbage. Not once. A guy tell me, when can I preach? I said, well, I'll tell you a story. A real nice story. It's a story about Moses. You know how long he sat on the back end of the desert? That's right, 50 years. So if you're willing to wait for 50 years, we, we might have you up sometime in the pulpit. He never came back again. I'm not sure why. But, but you, often get a, you often get a nose for them. You often begin to sniff it. They look for opportunities to promote themselves. They love to blog. They love to blog. They love to talk. I never hear them asking questions. I never hear them asking questions. You know why? They have all the answers. Just ask them. Just ask them. Hypocrites love themselves. They really are lovers of themselves. So in terms of dealing with the sin of hypocrisy, you have to know it. You have to recognize it, how it operates, how it shows itself. You have to know the enemy, and the enemy loves to hide. Second major practical counsel, as we bring things to a conclusion, how do you, how do you cultivate a wartime mentality against hypocrisy? How do you put it to death? Well, you certainly have to know the enemy you have to know how sin operates and, and the various avenues that the sin loves to go to serve itself, indulge itself, pamper itself. But you have to get your eyes on Jesus. Isn't that what this conference is about? I think that's what it's about. Imitating Christ. Well, how can you imitate Christ if you don't know him, you don't see him? You have to keep on looking to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ sets the wonderful example. Six times in the Gospels, he talks about picking up a cross. Not a pillow, but a cross. And everybody understood what the cross meant. It meant denying yourself. And meant giving yourself to others, serving others. That's why those disciple friends had such a hard time seeing Jesus wash their dirty feet. It didn't coincide with their personal ambition and their man-centered view of greatness. I want to be great. I want to be famous. And I ain't going to get famous by washing dirty feet. They wanted to be great, not humble servants. Jesus was the servant of servants. Hypocrisy promotes self. 
Love denies and forgets self. And Jesus uniquely, wonderfully got his eyes on other people. Have you noticed how many times in the Gospels Jesus looked? Forty times. Jesus looked. Jesus saw. And almost always when he sees, he moves quickly to help. He springs into action. So willing to deny himself, to serve others, even to deny himself by going to a cross. And when he's hanging on a cross, did you notice he's thinking about others? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I get in a real fit of pain or a hard, you know, period of time where I'm feeling a lot of chronic pain, I, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about myself. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. I, he's thinking about his enemies. Forgive them for they know not what they do. On the cross, he, he's seeking to take care of his mother. He said to the disciple, behold, behold your mother. And that thief on the cross who was railing against him, abusing him verbally. Jesus doesn't ignore him or refuse him, but listens to him when the man cries, Remember me! Remember me! And Jesus has a love answer. Yes! Right now! You'll be with me in my kingdom. Don't worry, my friend. You'll be there. If you really want to love the way Jesus loved, without hypocrisy, you're going to have to forget yourself. And that's not easy. Because default position of our hearts is me, me, me. Me, I, I could go on with that. Me, me, me. I got a book, that's, that's the title of it. Me, 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 me. I'll cross the, about a hundred lines. Me, 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 me. It's, it's all about me. The church is we. Society is me. Right? The world is me. The church is about we. And Jesus was about we. He was concerned for everyone else. He loved perfectly. He loved without hypocrisy. And that's why he tells his disciples in that upper room how much he loved them and that he's going to lay down his life for them. There was never, ever, ever any inconsistency in terms of what he said and what he did. His love was genuine. One hundred percent Genuine. That's the love of agape. The world talks a lot about love. It's almost sickening the way they talk about it, but they don't understand what true love is about. Most times, 
There can be common grace love. I, I know that. But most times, most times, it's self-centered. It's lust, not love. Lovers of money. Lovers of self. Lovers of pleasure. They're not lovers of God. And they're not lovers of Christ. You want to see love? Look to Jesus. Go to the cross. Love exegetes his cross. Herein is love. Behold the wondrous cross. Look, look, look. If you're not a Christian, if you ever want to love in the real sense of that word, you have to look to Jesus. You have to look to Jesus. You have to go to Jesus. Jesus is your only hope, the only, the only safe place for sinners to stand, the only safe place for hypocrites adulterers, fornicators, thieves, coveters, Jesus, his blood and righteousness. That's what every sinner desperately needs, a perfect law keeper and a sin bearer. And once you have Jesus, you always have Jesus. You'll always be loved by Jesus, no matter how bad life gets. You're on your worst days, and your best days, he'll always love you. He is the lover of lovers. Let's pray. Father, again, we <clears throat> go to you in faith and we trust with thanksgiving because you have changed our hearts. So many of us who sit here we are not what we once were. We thank you, Lord, for delivering us from self, from living for ourselves. But, oh, Lord, help us. Help us. We know we will always have to fight our sin, that sin that remains. But help us to be more ruthless in putting sin to death. And help us to be more determined to be like your son, Jesus, to imitate him. And that men may see us loving one another and know that we are his disciples. And we pray this in his name. Amen.